six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places. Thank you never for listening before. to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. We are Madison's listener supported community radio. It is June 10th, 2022, and I'm your host, Karma Chavez. Thanks to Rochelle for inviting me to be back here with you today. So while the month of June has become a time for corporations to show their gay pride by selling us rainbow-themed everything, we might also think about what we now call Pride Month as a time to reflect on the trajectory of what we once called simply gay rights and what we now think of as something much more expansive, encompassed in an ever-growing acronym designed to reflect the whole range of gender and sexual diversity. There are many ways to tell this history, many origin points and conflicting ideas about science, sex, and politics. Some of that history is rather triumphant and some of it is rather ugly. In a new University of Toronto press book by Laurie Marhofer, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, a Sexologist, His Student, and the Empire of Queer Love, we learn a new and complex take on one of these origin stories. Racism and the Making of Gay Rights tells the story of Magnus Hirschfeld, the legendary German sexologist who was at the vanguard of the new field of sexology in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and Li Shui Tong, a Chinese medical student from an elite family who became Hirschfeld's student, assistant, and likely lover. Marhofer's book follows Hirschfeld and Li from their first encounter through their travels around the globe and tells a powerful story about Hirschfeld's, how Hirschfeld's crusade to destigmatize homosexuality was premised in his tacit support of empire, racism, and eugenics. The book also gives Lee his due as an important historical figure in his own right. The book has already received high praise with one reader commenting, it's hard to do justice to the power of this book. Let me just say that once you open it, you'll have trouble tearing yourself away. And another describes the book as fascinating, important, and pioneering. Dr. Laurie Mohofer is an associate professor and the John Brigman Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. They are a historian of queer and trans politics with a specialty in modern German history. They are the author of numerous articles, as well as the 2015 book, also from the University of Toronto Press, Sex in the Weimar Republic, German Homosexual Emancipation, and the Rise of the Nazis. So another provocatively titled book, and I'm excited to talk to them today. Uh, Lori Morhofer, welcome to A Public Affair. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for, for having me on, Karma. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, I, I just think this book is fantastic, and I think listeners are probably going to want to join in, too. So if you are listening today and you want to join our conversation, give us a call in Madison, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, you can also post from anywhere to our Facebook page, A Public Affair, or you can tweet us at Wart Talk, and we'll be happy to get your questions or, or comments on the air. So, uh, Lori, I wonder if we might just start with some basics here, like uh, what is sexology? Yeah, okay, so <laughs> sexology is, so I think we think, oh, mas maybe people are like, Masters and Johnson, like it's this sort of quasi-science, but it started in the 19th century around, in the, like, couple of decades after psychiatry started as a discipline, and sexology was going to establish itself as the science of sex, so if you went to the doctor and you had a sex issue, you would go to a sexologist, it was a they were really, and Magnus Hirschfeld, this, this German guy, was one of the founders. And the idea was that this was going to become a subdiscipline and you could, you know, get a degree in it at a university and it was going to establish sex as a respectable topic for science, which it, it partially did, but it never really made it as a, you know, never achieved the respectability of psychiatry or like dermatology. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. But it was. Yeah, a, we, don't, uh, we don't have departments. Yeah, there was. There has. I mean, maybe there's a department somewhere, but it, yeah, you can't major in it. Um, but the the people who founded sexology were generally left moderately left to center people, and it was a it was like a zone where you could be pretty progressive about sex, and it was it, they they absolutely 
some of them thought of it as a form of activism, that they were going to spread the, the scientific truth about sex and that that was going to help liberate everyone, including queer people. Um, they also, birth control advocacy came out of sexology as well, or sexology was a big support for that um, and other, other left of center sex reform stuff before the Second World War. And then the Second World War really destroyed European sexology. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's an interesting history, and I hope we can get into some of the uh, ways it, it taps into uh, these other big movements that were happening uh, simultaneously. So tell us a little bit about uh, Hirschfeld. I realize the whole book is in part about him, but if you could just give us a, a brief introduction to, to who he was and, and, and what motivated his work. Yeah, so I think he really deserves to be, first of all, I, I, I have a lot of critical things to say about him, but I think he ought to be a lot more famous than he is. He's the person who did more than anyone else to give us gay politics, mainstream gay politics, as it came to exist in the 20th century. So he, he's one of the first people to publish the idea that gay that, that if you are gay, if you have same-sex desire, you're a special person. So if you think about in the Middle Ages, um, the idea is that having same-sex desire is a sin and the Catholic for the Catholic Church is a really serious sin. But in theory, like sins are things that anyone can commit. So like, you know, shoplifting is something that in theory any, any of us are, are not in theory, any of us engage in, right? This is the same with same-sex desire. And then there's a transformation in that thinking that, that really comes out of the Enlightenment to this idea that, no, you're a special kind of person. Um, a lot of people associate this with psychiatry and Foucault, but in the book, I give this alternate history that starts earlier that Hirschfeld's really a part of. So by the end of the 19th century, he's publishing that only a special kind of person feels same-sex desire. That person is a homosexual, and he was the first person to make that a biological category. So people before him um, had made references, you know, they had this model of analogy where they were like, well, we're a class of people. We're like women or we're like witches or we're like European Jews. And Herschel keeps all that, but he's like, yeah. And also it's something you're born with. It's some kind of a biological innate part of you and it's not an illness and it shouldn't be changed. And therefore the persecution of people who have this thing is totally unjust and violates, you know, the norms of um, democratic society. That that idea, which I think is still like so widespread, that that's that's what it means to be gay. That really comes out of this guy, this one guy who's not very well remembered in the U.S. Um, but yeah, he's like a hugely important person, and was a lot more famous in his day than he is today. So like, the book is about the end of his life when he went on this lecture tour around the world, and he toured the United States. Um, and he was in Chicago, gave lectures in Chicago, and then went out to California, most, mostly by train. And I looked at like the papers and stuff, and he he was pretty well known, pretty famous guy in that moment. Like Americans knew who this guy was, and they associated him with this idea that you know he's for the liberation of homosexuals, and that was seen as like, you know, of course queer people love that, but like a lot of in the mainstream, they're like, this is this idea is, you know, totally whack. Like he, he wasn't accepted in his day by mainstream society. But yeah, yeah, he was, he was pretty well known in the 30s. The Einstein of sex. Yeah. I was going to say that, yeah, the, the Einstein of sex. And so he, he that that maybe didn't stick as well as he might have liked it to. Right. But uh, it does suggest the kind of the, the regard he was held in uh, by widespread audiences, uh, which I think is fascinating. And so, so people familiar with gay history will probably at least have heard of Hirschfeld. I mean, you know, if undergrad classes and gay studies, you're probably going to get an excerpt of something that he's written. But they may not, or maybe even probably not, uh, have heard of uh, of Li Shu Tong, and that's the other person who you're you're writing about in the book. So, so uh, who was Li, and, and and why was he an important figure for your book? Yeah, so, so Herschel was on this world lecture tour and he went across the United States and then he sailed to Japan and he gave lectures in Japan and then he went on to China. And when he, the newspapers in Shanghai, before he got there, they advertised his lectures and it said, you know, one of the foremost experts in sex is going to come and give public lectures. Okay, so Lei, uh, Lei Xiotong was 
a guy in his 20s. He was a medical student. He was from a wealthy family in Hong Kong studying medicine in Shanghai. And he was very interested in sexology. And so he, I, I think he saw the newspapers. He went to see Hirschfeld lecture. Um, Hirschfeld gave a lecture to a feminist club the, uh, uh, of Chinese women in a fancy building in Shanghai. Shanghai was a colonial city. So um, it was pretty, I, I did all this like reading about colonial Shanghai. It's pretty fascinating that it was, it was controlled by a, a democratic city council kind of structure that was made up of white foreigners who controlled like the most economically powerful part of the city. It was this colonial zone and the, and the regulations on Chinese people in that area were very, very Jim Crow-esque. So there were like rules that you couldn't go in a public park or you had to pay a fee in a public park. It was pretty like horrible. So this is the city that they met in. And that was like what Lei had grown up with. He'd grown up with this kind of colonialism in China. Um, and so after the lecture, he went up to Hirschfeld and he introduced himself and he said, do you need somebody to translate for you while you're touring China? And Hirschfeld said, yes. And this was the beginning of like one of the most important relationships of both of their lives. Leib became Hirschfeld's assistant. He helped him lecture all over the world. This was really like a high point of gay rights. It's the, it, there's no precedent for someone going all over the world, giving lectures in which they defend the naturalness of homosexuality. It's, that's not all he said in his lectures, and it wasn't the main point of the lecture, but, but he, he, it was in there, you know, that, and that was a really big deal in the 30s. So Lay was part of that. He was like Hirschfeld's guy Friday. He would run his slides for the presentations, um, and they felt, I, certainly Hirschfeld fell in love with Lay, and I think Lay fell in love with Hirschfeld, although it's a little, it's a little like, yeah, I think maybe it's good to keep open the possibility that we're not sure how Lay felt about Hirschfeld. I, I think there's a lot of evidence that he did fall for him. But um, anyway, yeah, so they they formed a very close relationship and Hirschfeld decided that Lay would be his successor and take over sexology after he died. And Hirschfeld got very like into that idea that I finally found like the guy who's going to carry on my intellectual project. Hirschfeld was very interested in... Um, finding somebody who would be completely loyal to his ideas and wouldn't like revise anything at all. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But so Lay, when he died, you know, it was kind of, I, I mean, I don't wanna, I, I don't wanna, well, I feel like Hirschfeld put a lot on this guy. He was much younger. He hadn't finished his medical degree, right? Uh, the Nazis were in power. They were in exile. Like sexology was about to get demolished and was like, yeah, you're gonna carry on my work, you know. In his in his will, Hirschfeld um really like describes his relationship with Lay, which was a love relationship of some kind, like as an intellectual. It's like you're my intellectual heir, and you're gonna take over now. And if you if you take the resources that I'm leaving you, they have to be used for sexology. They can't be used for anything else. It was very like, I feel like it was kind of controlling, um, you know, and kind of unfair to this guy. So. Anyway, but but at that point, so at the point that Hirschfeld dies, most other people who have written about Hirschfeld just lose interest in Lay, and they don't follow him at all, and he becomes like a footnote. And there's a little bit in some books of this kind of like resentment of him that he like didn't carry on the project of sexology and like what happened to him and like, you know, so I, I really wanted to push back against that because I feel like Lay is just this fascinating person. And it turned out he did write a book. Um, he didn't publish it. I went to Berlin to see it. It's a work of sexology. In the book, he says he went all over the world after Hirschfeld died, exactly as Hirschfeld would have wanted, right? And what's so interesting is that in Lay ended up deciding that Hirschfeld was wrong about some major parts of his theory. <laughs> so Lay says in his book that the instance of same-sex desire in the human population is much like more common than Hirschfeld thought. And also he revises the idea that you're born gay, which is maybe mm -hmm. Hirschfeld's most important contribution to world history. Lay's like, yeah, I'm not so sure. I think it's more complicated than that. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So I got super like excited about Lay and I, I think he's a really interesting guy. And I just tried to find out everything I could about him. Yeah. 
I know. I, I think definitely it's the, the, the parts about him are fascinating. And, and I'll, I'll actually, I'll return to him in a little bit, but maybe I can dig into some of these other uh, parts of the book. But before we do that, um, and I think you kind of already answered this, but uh, we had uh, caller Mike who uh, said, isn't one of the reasons that Hirschfeld is so little known today because his work and institution were shut down very early in the Third Reich? Yeah, that's right. If, that's right. If the Nazis hadn't taken power, he would be much better known. There's also a conservative wave that sweeps over other parts of the world in the in the 40s and 50s. So I've, I looked at how his memory in the U.S. in the 40s and the 50s, and he's, he's still very widely cited into the 50s and 60s, but in a very dismissive way. Like a lot of people who studied sex in the 50s and 60s in the U.S. were studying it from a conservative Freudian perspective. So they'll mention him. They'll be like, there was this one guy, Magnus Hirschfeld, who thought homosexuality was inborn. But of course, we know that's wrong. You know, but but he's he's still pretty well remembered. And then I think um, his memory dropped off in kind of general public memory. But gay activists in the U.S. knew who he was through, through mm -hmm. 50s, 60s, into the 70s. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's right. The Nazis taking power is part of what happened. He, yeah, Hirschfeld was Jewish. And he was a particular target of the Nazis because he was associated with this left-wing sex reform. So he he never went back to Germany after he finished his lecture tour. He went into exile, and he was really in danger. Um, right. Yeah. He passed in 1935, um, so before the war started. But if, you know, Ley was trying really hard to get Hirschfeld to move to the United States at the end of his life, which was an excellent idea because um, he but he decided to stay in France which would have been dangerous if if he were alive when the war had started well and this was an interesting uh, point in the book too because um, Ley only studied in German and English if I'm remembering correctly which is part of what his incentive was for wanting to go to the United States and he was actually willing to I think he said to fund the whole trip not just for he and Hirschfeld but for uh, another one of Hirschfeld's sort of lovers slash, uh, you know, friends, uh, you know, workmates, whatever you want to call it. Um, but kind of it seemed like at the last minute Hirschfeld just decided to stay in France. Is that um, is that accurate? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, it was pretty poignant. I I um, we have Hirschfeld's journal from this period because Lay saved it. It was saved in Lay's papers. Lay was Canadian and died in Vancouver at the end of his life. Um, and then Hirschfeld's, so Hirschfeld's stuff was in Canada. Um, yeah, and there's this really poignant series of entries where Lay is offering to pay for Hirschfeld to move to the United States and to fund um, Hirschfeld's other boyfriend, Carl Giza. Hirschfeld had two boyfriends in this period. Um, these people were not monogamous, which I kind of, I thought was kind of right on to see. I mean, they don't have, they don't have the whole context of gay marriage that, you know, kind of at all, like, like, like mm -hmm. marriage just means something so different to them that they don't really think about same sex marriage as even a possibility or, um, uh, yeah, which is, which is, I thought was really interesting, but, uh, yeah, Lay was going to pay for everybody to move to the U S and I, you know, my sense is like Hirschfeld was just really old and tired and he wasn't doing well. And he was like, I can't, I just can't do it at this point. He was mm -hmm. also pretty comfortable in Nice. Um, he got this new, Lay, so Lay finally went to the University of Zurich to pick up medical school again. And Hirschfeld was really upset about that. And he really missed him. But he also got this new good looking guy, secretary, who was living with him in Nice. So I think, I think he was quite comfortable and, um, but yeah, I, you know, it would have been really interesting historically. He Hirschfeld wanted to take over part of Harry Benjamin's medical practice in the U.S. And if he had come here and done that, you know, it, he would certainly be better remembered. And like, I don't know what what would have changed. It's um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, real quick, remind uh, listeners who Harry Benjamin is. Yeah, Harry Benjamin is one of the most important figures in trans medicine. Uh, wrote a really influential book um, and then also like helped to establish the mid-century trans clinics in the United States and to establish standards of care 
he wasn't trans. He wasn't, I mean, it, by the, by the standards of the time, he was very supportive of trans people. By our standards, he was like horribly gatekeepy and not supportive. Right? Um, but Benjamin is a guy who lived, I can't remember, I think he almost lived to be a hundred. He had this crazy long lifespan. So he had studied in Germany. He had known Herschel and then he migrated here. Um, and then lived into the late 20th century here. Also, also a, a German Jewish sexologist like Hirschfeld. Gotcha. Yeah, I just think he's an important figure and people may not uh, know of him either. Uh, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. And we're talking with Professor Laurie Marhofer about their new book, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, a sexologist, his student, and the empire of queer love. It just came out last month from the University of Toronto Press. If you want to join this conversation, please do. We have about 30 minutes left in the show. Call us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Post to our Facebook page, A Public Affair, or tweet us at Wart Talk, and we'll get your questions or uh, comments on the air. So you write that for Hirschfeld, empire was a source of data. And, and you further suggest that homosexual emancipation was usually tacitly or even explicitly in favor of empire. Will you explain what that means? Yeah, yeah. So early homosexual emancipation, we're talking like late 19th century. One of their big projects was to do this kind of anthropology where they went, where they gathered information from all around the world and showed that same-sex desire was universal. So the it it's it for them it was a companion argument to gathering information about same-sex desire through all of human history and showing that it had always existed. And the the conclusion that they wanted people to draw is like, well, if this has always existed in basically the same way, it must be natural and it must have some kind of a biological root, and we shouldn't have a problem with it. Um, but so and and Hirschfeld was a a big part of this. He has a big big chunks of his books are devoted to showing that homosexuality exists in, in a universal like form all over the world. But so the way that they were getting this data was that there were mostly men, but, but also some women took part of this, who were white Europeans who took jobs in the colonial civil service. This is a time when most of the world was under European, most African, Asia, um, and the Pacific, mostly under European domination, divide, world divided up into colonies, right? So, like, queer men would rotate into colonial civil service positions, and then they would come back to Hirschfeld in Berlin and tell him about all of their sexual adventures with colonized men and, like, how many colonized men they hooked up with and where they met them and stuff. And so Hirschfeld was, like, you know, taking really detailed notes on all of this because it's like, oh, right, there are gay men right, in South Africa as well, like Johannesburg has a cruising scene, like that's evidence that, you know, homosexuality is universal. But um, he records all of this without, uh, you know, without any kind of like hesitation about, well, what is the colonial project? Like, what kind of violence is going on here? Like, what are the power relations between these people? He's just completely, and Heike Bauer is a wonderful scholar of Hirschfeld as well, who wrote a really great book called The Hirschfeld Archive. that people should check out, but like her, she's like, he's just oblivious to, to colonial violence. And the, there's even a connection. Um, and one, so Herschel's famous for co-founding one of the first gay rights or the first gay rights group um, in 1897. So super early. Uh, he co-founded it with a couple of other queer men. One of them was a, a guy who had had a significant post in one of the German colonies, like during a bloody colonial revolt and genocide. So somebody who had actually like fought against colonized people. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it's just like, wow. You know, but the, the thing, the thing that I, yeah. So it's the sort of, this is the empire of queer love that, that I, the, like the, the 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 part of the title is a is trying to describe like this gay circuit through the empire and how empire was like sexy for queer people. I, I even found evidence of women 
um, like fantasizing about, I'm going to go to this colony. I'm a white German woman. I'm going to go to this colony and have an affair with somebody. And then it's going to be really hot. And then I'll come back to Germany. <laughs> like, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's even, I found this short story about this trans woman who like, can finally tra- like like can finally transition only when she gets to colonial South Asia. That there's something about colonial South Asia that's like freer than Europe, and she can and and she tells the story of finally transitioning and finally being able to dress in gender like the the clothing that matches her gender. And um, so there there's this white European fantasy of the colonies as freer and more open and like kind of sexy, and we're gonna go there, right? That's the empire of queer love. But, but what's so cool is that when Hirschfeld was traveling with Leigh through empire, it was like a very different picture. And Hirschfeld got that. He saw that. He saw how violent the empire was. He saw Leigh being targeted because of because he was Chinese, because of racism, white racism. Um, I mean, they, they had this incident where they arrived in Manila, which was an American colony. Um, the Philippines were an American colony, right? The, the Philippines were... Uh, conquered by the United States in, a, in an extremely bloody war that killed half a million Filipinos. Um, and when Hirschfeld and Leigh sailed into Manila Bay, the Americans wouldn't let Leigh off the ship because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So mm-hmm. I think in part because like he was with this guy who was suffering because of white racism, the book that Hirschfeld wrote about the world journey with Leigh is very anti-imperial. So it's a real change for him. Um, and and for me, like, as much as I'm critical of Hirschfeld and I don't want to hold him up as a gay hero, like, it is this inspiring moment in early gay rights where it's like, oh, this is a broader, like, like the queer struggle has to be a struggle against empire because queers are affected by empire and racism. Like, even Hirschfeld has these moments where he's clearly aware of that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's and that like question of like are white queers going to fight against empire and racism or are they just gonna like kind of try to save themselves <laughs> like i mean a lot of people associate that with stonewall you know and like like the debates that come out of stonewall and sylvia rivera's activism and then like the white activists who who reject her um but it goes back to the beginning it goes back to the 19th century that that question has always been there in gay politics that's that's sort of yeah, yeah, that that really struck me looking back at this stuff. I was like, wow, that goes all the way back to the beginning. It's so fundamental. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's incredible the the way that you lay that out. Uh, and it's, you know, once you've written it, it it's so obvious, but it, it, it's not something that's a part of the way we, we think we know this history as a, as a general rule. So I think that's one of the big things that the book does so well. And what's I think interesting too about Hirschfeld is, is he is such a complicated figure. And so, you know, on the one hand, he becomes in a way, in his own way, anti-imperialist, but at the same time, there's the way that racialized discourses and uh, um, analogizing uh, become central to basically his entire project. And so I wonder um, in particular, if you talk about the way that analogy uh, becomes dominant in uh, the the way that he he thinks he and others are are thinking about uh, homosexual identity or homosexuality. Yeah. So the problem with analogy, like this, is something that people were pointing out before I was even born. Like like black feminists, queer of color scholars have for a long time pointed out that this kind of analogizing when you're like being a woman is like being black or like gay is the new black that like when white people use that kind of thinking it it just erases people of color who are part of the movement it it implies that like if you're white you're gay and if you're black you're not gay um so like I'm not the first person you know to to point that out, but 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 again like I was really surprised to find it in the 19th century that that this this isn't this is at the very root of gay politics. It goes all the way back. Um, so I think it's something that like in gay politics it's really good when we think about it and we're, we're thoughtful about it because it's been there the whole time. It's kind of baked in. So if you look the the like the first. Um, published argument in favor of something like gay rights. So like 
the guy who wrote it, who was a Swiss hat maker in a little village who like nobody remembers anymore. But um, he had a concept that like there's a special kind of person who feels same sex desire and that that's, that's an innate part of that person. And it's a class of people and there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing. Like the first, the first time that we have anybody who published that is the 1830s, the 1830s in German speaking Switzerland, and by this guy named Heinrich Hüsli. And that guy is like, makes analogies between gay people and other oppressed classes in order to explain like, what is a gay person? And I really think it all goes back to the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, where you where you start to get in European politics, this idea that, like, there are oppressed classes of people in society, and they're unfairly oppressed. Um, and and the, the, the over time for gay activists, like, you know, the, early on, they're making a lot of analogies to witches. If you like, so the witch burnings of the early modern period, they're like, you know, witches were a group of people who were oppressed because of superstition and we know that that wasn't scientific and you know thank god by the 1830s we've all agreed that that was a big mistake so like we should we should stop doing the same thing to gay people like but it's like in order to explain to you what gay people are we have to like make an analogy to a class of people that you're already familiar with um but the the group of people that they make the analogy most often to is european jews who had been distinguished by special legislation for hundreds of years and who like were disenfranchised and like so they're and and also over the course of the 19th century european jews experienced this like amazing emancipation that they fought for um where a lot of like by the end of the 19th century those special restrictions are all repealed, European Jews are full citizens in, in the German nation, um, you know, and, go, and some German Jews go on to have positions of power in the German government after the First World War. Um, so, so by the, tw- the 20s, like, it really looks like European Jews have been so successful and like gay rights activists are like, we are like Jews. We are, they, th- this is where the term um, sexual minority comes from that you, you find it in the writing around the First World War, where they're like, in the same way that the Jews are a racial minority, we're a sexual minority. Or people remember their like high school Treaty of Versailles history, but when the First World War ended, there was this big international conversation about protecting minorities, national minorities. So like Poland had been taken off the map and Poland was recreated, was like established again after the First World War Poland for the Poles, they're a national minority, they deserve a homeland. So gay rights activists were super inspired by that. And they were like, we're like the Poles, like we don't have a homeland, but we're a sexual minority like these national minorities, like these racial minorities. Um, So that analogy is like super central. But then the problem is that it just, it makes, um, it, it just kind of, you default to, well, the gay, like, a gay person is a white person. A gay person's not a person of color. Um, it that that this is the problem with this kind of analogy politics. And I, I do, you know, I think that we have Hirschfeld, like he's responsible for that. Ultimately, he has these really inspiring moments. But the the his legacy was to make it so that it was really easy for white gay people to be like, well, gay politics is about gay people and that means white people and if you're not white then that's you know that's extra or whatever or we'll we'll think about that after lunch or whatever that's like a side issue you know which was a really bad bad politics which is a bad politics which totally like left out lay i mean you can kind of see how lay might be like i don't know if i want to carry this legacy yeah yeah totally no i mean it's it starts on gender in the mix it gets more complicated as well um, I think at one point you, you, you describe him as a, as a bad feminist, uh, uh, which I guess in one way, at least he, you know, had some relationship to feminism, but you, you say he, he was a bad one. I don't know if you want to elaborate on the gender point. Yeah, I want to I want to try to find this quotation and read it just so people can get a sense. Um yeah. Well, while you're doing that, I'll do a I'll do a quick station identification and just remind people that you're listening to a public affair on WRTSM uh, 89.9. We're here in Madison talking with Professor Laurie Marhofer about their new book, Racism and the Making of Gay Rights, A Sexologist, His Student, and the Empire of Queer Love. Uh, so we had about 20 minutes left in the show. Give us a call at 
256-2001, extension 9. Tweet us at Wart Talk or go to our A Public Affair Facebook page and we'll get your comments on the air. So, uh, Lori, I'll turn it back to you to, to read this uh, clip about uh, Hirschfeld's bad feminism. Yeah, so he, so Hirschfeld's kind of a gay hero to, to a lot of, I mean, he's a real gay hero in Germany, and I think a lot of people really admire him. Um, but when I really went back and combed through his work, I found that the guy was sexist and racist. And there's a long examination of that in the book. There's lots of evidence and quotations and stuff that people can check out. But I just want to read this one quotation because it's a really, I think it's one of the worst ones and it it encapsulates this. Um, okay, so to set this up, this is from Sexology One, which was one of his, you know, the, the kind of the masterwork of the, the last part of his life. Um, and I want to... Um, you know, just clarify that brain size is not actually a marker of intellectual capacity. <laughs> um, okay, quote, this is Hirschfeld, quote, the weights of the brains of the primitive peoples remain considerably less than those of the cultural peoples. As the culture declines, skull capacity will be reduced. Okay, so end quotation. Um, he goes on in the passage, if I can just paraphrase it, to argue that, you know, it's not all bad news because actually as your cultural situation gets like more complex, your brain can actually get more complex. So it's good news for all of us. We're not doomed to have stunted brains. Um, and then he's like, for example, take white women and black American men and women. Okay, so here I'm going to, this is again as a quotation, so picking up, I just paraphrase kind of the middle, and then this is the rest of the quote. Quote, the female brain has within it a considerable possibility to increase in capacity. After all, even the brains of American Negroes have experienced a rapidly accelerated development since the abolition of slavery, end quote. Okay, so there, what he's saying is that white women and black men and black American men and women all have stunted brains, <laughs> which I think is horrible, yeah. is horrible, is horrible. And I just want to say, like, I've taught Hirschfeld for years, and I didn't know about this quotation. And I feel yeah, like yeah. I betrayed my students teaching him without being like, you know what, he was racist and sexist. And I need to tell you that too. Because one of someday my students are really smart, you know, I bet they found this quotation or someday they would find this quotation. And like, then what kind of a service are we doing to our students? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, um, I mean, he was kind of a misogynist, like he's very dismissive of women. Uh, he, he does comment at times about how women have reduced intellectual capacity in comparison to men. I think he, when he says women, he's thinking white women, because his comments about black women are even, even more disturbing. Um, also, he has some really troubling passages about disabled women um, mm. that, I, that I found that I was kind of shocked to find. Uh, yeah, his, his disability politics are not really great either. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a, we have a, a question uh, from an email from a listener, Amber, uh, who writes, uh, healthcare has recently been asking patients to register their identities, particularly lesbian, gay, and trans, in their electronic medical records in a SOGI app, so Sexual Orientation Gender Identity app. This info, I assume that's what it means. Uh, this info is subsequently available to anyone seeing or treating the patient. I've seen this as a continuation of the project of hegemonic systems documenting marginalized populations. Uh, I'm wondering if the guests could speak to how this practice continues the dynamics they are mapping given medical racism and colonialism and the medicalization of gender nonconformity and same-sex attraction. Do you have thoughts on that, Lori? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that I don't particularly like about Hirschfeld as applied to my own life is the medicalization of the of his model. That was absolutely done on purpose. It was it was strategic for him, um, and in some ways it really worked. He would not if he had not been a recognized medical doctor and scientist who was making a supposedly scientific argument um, about homosexuality's innateness. People would have simply censored his books. So. It was done out of necessity um, and I think did 
you know, brought a lot of solace to a lot of queer people um, and was a positive alternative to psychiatry, which was arguing at the time that homosexuality was a mental illness and, and you know, held that into the late 20th century. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do. I, so the medicalization stuff um, continues. And yeah, I find it personally, like, kind of troubling. I, at the end of the book, I have this, um, like, little rant about how thinking of queer, you know, thinking beyond the medical model is quite inspiring for queer politics. Lots of people have, right? You know, that's not my, like, original idea. But um, I mean, I think for trans politics, it's a little different. Um, the way that trans politics have um, strategically interacted with the medical profession historically has been has been different. Um, but lots of trans activists, you know, also really push back on the medicalization of trans identities. Um, I mean, it'd be great if we lived in a world where we didn't have to medicalize this stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, at the, at sure. the same time, I'm mindful of what's going on in Texas, you know, and other places with trans kids. So, yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually in Austin, Texas right now recording this. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's real and palpable in places like that. So uh, thank you, Amber, for, for your question. Uh, so we have about 12 minutes left here in the show. Uh, I wanted to get into this. Uh, it's, it's definitely related, uh, this question of eugenics. So Hirschfeld was a proponent of eugenics. This is a point that has vexed historians. Um, so I guess what did eugenics look like to Hirschfeld, and why do you argue that it's important for us to kind of reconsider and take seriously? this legacy. I mean, you've kind of already said this about his race politics, but eugenics, was, he had an interesting point of view on this. Yeah, this is what, I mean, the Hirschfeld and eugenics question has been a little bit about, like, the long debate about Margaret Sanger that I feel like is kind of finally concluded um, in, in a way that I, I agree with, which is, like, she had some really troubling politics, and we have to just face that. Um, I didn't expect to find that about Hirschfeld because I, I I had read the scholarship that was like, yeah, you know, he kind of, he was supportive of eugenics, but mostly like voluntary stuff and education. Um, and I believe that I was like, yeah, well, that's very normal. I mean, it's, it's hard to find somebody in the thirties who was left of center who like didn't support some version of eugenics including W.E.B. Du Bois, like, has some eugenic concepts about improving the Black race in America. Um, mm-hmm. Eugenics is a, is a weird thing. You know, it's, it's definitely, like, something that right-wing people took up and instrumentalized and used against queer people of color and, and white people who were disabled or poor. And that's the, that's the main story in the United States. Um, but it the idea that like we can breed over time for positive traits was seductive to a lot of different people. And Hirschfeld's version of it is mostly voluntary, but it's not only voluntary. He also has this like queer eugenics that I found so interesting where he so let me sort of stop or slow down and like talk about the two things. So in terms of like, it's not voluntary. I found this case that, that you know, I don't wanna, I mean, maybe somebody's published on it, but like, I've, I had read a lot of the scholarship. I had never seen this case discussed anywhere. There's a big literature on him. It's in his, it's in his published work. It's right there, it's in his own words. And he's like, I was called in to consult on a case of a woman who was, had, a, had an intellectual disability and was having a lot of sex with men. She wasn't married to them. Her family was very concerned. It sounds like she was in her 20s. Um, He was like, so I was called in. The family was like, what are we going to do? We can't control her. And I recommended that she be castrated. So that's like a major operation, not just to destroy reproductive capability, but to destroy the the sex drive entirely so that the behavior would stop. and it sounds like he probably made similar recommendations in other cases. He certainly doesn't say this is the only one. He indicates that he, he's in favor of forced like sterilization or castration in some cases. He's like, rarely. But then he gives this example, which I was like kind of devastated, actually, having, you know, having for many years read about him as a gay hero to find this like 
I, yeah, I was like, oh, we should rethink this whole thing here. Like, you know, that's the first part. But then the second part is just how much he wrote about eugenics. He really believed he believed in the science of eugenics. Like, he was mostly for voluntary measures, but he also thought that gay rights and eugenics really worked together. So he writes a lot about how gay people don't reproduce and that what's happening there is that there's degeneration in your family line and it gets all concentrated in the gay child and then the gay child doesn't have children and then the family like goes on to thrive. <laughs> so gay people are like eugenically beneficial. Um, and he, th this is where marriage comes in. Like he very, writes, very rarely writes about gay people in marriage, but he has these long passages where he says, it's really important that gay people never get married, never get married. Cause to him, that means married to a straight person. And you know, most gay people did get married to straight people. I, I would say probably, I mean, you know, tell me how long you think that was the majority experience for, but for sure, like through the first half of the 20th century. Um, so he's oh, like, yeah, that's really definitely. bad. Yeah. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I was, yeah. People should read Her Neighbor's Wife. That's a, this is like a new book about married lesbians in the U.S., um, of which there were many. <laughs> Um, yeah, my colleague here, Lauren, wrote that book. Oh, right on. I just, it's great. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. Lauren Gutterman, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, great book. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, he's, so he's against, in a way, it's like great that he's pushing back on marriage as a norm for queer people, but he, yeah, the, the eugenics, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, he was for eugenics, but that's okay, because it's incidental. We want to look at him as a gay activist, but he saw the, he saw his gay activism as totally part of his eugenic plan. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things, again, like the, the kind of complexity of some of these figures. And, and you know, they, I, I also love the way in the book that you, you write about um, you know, his his dismissal of, of black folks, black queer folks, Langston Hughes, for example, um, and that it, so it wasn't kind of just this, you know, it, it, the, the, the race politics got particular in a certain sense. I don't know if you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, so he was, he was in New York in the winter of 1930, 1931, giving lectures, and he hooked up with Carl Van Vetchen, the photographer, publicist, publisher, writer, who was a white, uh, influential white writer who got involved in promoting Harlem, Re Harlem Renaissance artists, including Langston Hughes. Um, and Hirschfeld had, had the opportunity to meet Langston Hughes and James Weldon Johnson, who was a really important NAACP leader and speechmaker and also a, a writer. Um, he had he he had tea with them. I think probably there was booze because Van Vetchen was like super boozy, <laughs> um, but I don't have evidence of that. But anyway, yeah. So he met he met Langston Hughes, um, who uh, you know I'm not an Americanist, but I I read the literature and I think we're we're not sure how what was going on with Langston Hughes. He's he's remembered as queer. Um, he may have been queer. He certainly hung out with a lot of people we know were queer, right? So the Harlem Renaissance was super mm -hmm. queer. And and he was involved in this very short-lived but important Fire magazine, which was this black, queer, anti-establishment publication that, that he and Richard Bruce Nugent and some other people put together or kind of around, roughly around the same time that he met Hirschfeld. So 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 Hughes was for sure like involved in black queer politics. Um and we don't have much of a record of their meeting, but, but one like place it's recorded is in Hirschfeld's um, like journal and um, his letters to people, he mentions it too. And he's very dismissive of Hughes and James Weldon Johnson. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, he, the only thing, he, one of the only things he wrote about Langston Hughes is quote unquote, studies of the black race. Like Langston mm -hmm. Hughes is just a racial specimen to him, which which wow. makes me really upset, you know, because I'm sure they, if he if he could get over his racism, they would have had a lot to talk about. But like, it's just yeah, really troubling, really troubling. 
Well, and you also say, I know we're, we're, we're nearing the end of the hour, but you know that he had a lot, Hirschfeld had a lot to say about black Americans, but nothing to say about black Germans in his work. Yeah, that, that really surprised me. So like in the book, a lot of, I have a, I have a couple of chapters on like his racism and also on like his, his interactions with black people around the world. And, and he has like zero to say about black Germans, even though Berlin was home to a vibrant black German community that was, that, that was an activist community. And like, he actually had, Hirschfeld has ties to a human rights organization that was involved in the black German struggle in his lifetime. But like, he just, I mean, like so many white Germans of, of his era, he just cannot conceive that there are black Germans. Like to be German means to be white despite the fact that he was Jewish, which, which confused me for a long time, but I, but I also read a lot of what he wrote about Jewishness and Jewish identity, and he really does think that Jews are white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know it's such a complex figure. So we really have about a minute and a half left in the show, but I do want to kind of bring us to the present, and I wish we would have had more time to talk about Lay because also those chapters are so fascinating, and I really want to encourage people to read the book. But I guess, you know, we're in Pride Month, uh, and you've written this beautiful book that has implications for the notion of gay rights. And so, you know, what's the biggest takeaway for your book, uh, for listeners, uh, about kind of Hirschfeld's legacy and the themes in the book? I would, I would say, like, for Pride Month, I've been thinking a lot about how for white queer people in Pride Month, like, let's not let Pride Month be all about white people. There are so many inspiring people of color in queer history and Lay is one of them, but there are lots of other people. Like, it's been really cool to see um, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson getting a lot of, like, public attention around Pride, and that's, like, right on, and, like, I let's let's celebrate that, you know? that I think that's, for me, like, thinking about Pride, that's the biggest takeaway. But I also think, like, you know, like so many other people have written, gay rights has to be anti-racist, it has to be anti-colonial, Otherwise, it's going to leave out the majority of queer people who are the majority of queer people are people who has, have to deal with racism because they're not white people. So, I, you know, lots of other people have, have written about that before me. But uh, I think it's it, seeing like how that's been an issue from the beginning, I think, is a really good reminder of, of for white yeah. activists and people like myself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we're going to have to leave it right there. Our guest today is Professor Lori Marhofer, author of Racism in the Making of Gay Rights, a sexologist whose student in the Empire of Queer Love out last month from the University of Toronto Press. Thank you for being here today, Lori. Oh my gosh, thanks so much. Thank you. Certainly. And thank you, Madison, for listening today, to Rochelle for producing the show, Summer for engineering. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this is A Public Affair. Precision, high crime treason. We broadcast in sedition, like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions, live and direct, becoming never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen. To-